Hi, welcome to Arguably. I'm Ross Anderson, and today we're talking about the mind. The mind is fascinating. It's a necessary condition for thought and podcast appreciation, but even the concept of the self. We can only think of ourselves as ourselves because we have a mind. And yet, despite its necessity for understanding, we know so little about it. We know so little about why we think the way we do, why we feel the way we do, and what factors are influencing us. And that's why psychology as a field is so fascinating. And yet, much like its subject, psychology proves scientifically difficult. All sciences have been going through a replication crisis, where major studies are failing to reproduce their results when tested again under laboratory conditions. And few areas are more vulnerable to this than psychology. Jesse Single, a great science reporter and a friend of mine, wrote an excellent book about this very topic, titled The Quick Fix, showing just how scientifically flawed many of the most famous nuggets of modern psychological knowledge are. To quote from my review of the book in The American Conservative, quote, Single notes 75% of social psychology experiments failed to replicate in a 2015 study, with studies overall only being replicated a third to a half of the time and a 2018 study finding only 50% replicated. That's horrifying, particularly when this faux knowledge is put to service trying to help people with PTSD or serious depression and so forth. Bad science harms, ruins, and ends lives, and that includes psychology. And that's why, today, we have one of the most interesting, prominent psychologists working, who demonstrates the exact kind of rigor and epistemological humility that we need in all sciences. His name is Paul Bloom, and he's brilliant. I first came across Bloom's work when I was 15, with his book Just Babies, The Origin of Good and Evil, which I really enjoyed. But it was his next book, Against Empathy, that blew me away. In it, Bloom shows how our instincts about how to act morally, to do the right thing, often have little connection with how we should best reason morally, what will do the most good, and that empathy is a core culprit in leading us astray. It's an incredible book and completely counterintuitive, the idea that the way we feel about doing something good actually often isn't the best way to act if we want to do good. If you're interested in the philosophy of morality and how we come to believe in concepts like good and bad, you have to read this book. It's one of the three books that had the biggest impact on how I think and see the world, so it was surreal getting to speak to Bloom. The other two books, for those interested, are Ordinary Men by Christopher Browning, and Strangers Drowning by Larissa McFarquhar. His two most recent books are also great. 2021's The Sweet Spot is on the pleasure and suffering and all that entails, and this year's Psych, The Story of the Human Mind, is a book for those of you who have ever wanted to take a great intro to psychology course but didn't want crippling student debt. This is a great conversation about the way our minds work, the state of the field, and so, so much more. If you've read his books, you'll get so much out of this, and if you haven't, it's a great place to start. If you like it, you can support the podcast at arguablypod.com and get access to episodes a week early. But in the meantime, enjoy. Paul Bloom, welcome to Arguably. Looking forward to talking with you. First question. Um, when you talk to non-academics, they tend to think of psychology as being a medical science in the same way that we think of neuroscience or something like that. But psychologists, when you ask them, tends to be slightly more muddy on that. I remember speaking to one psychologist and she said that psychology is closer to an art form than a science, which kind of horrified me. And at the same time, science at the moment is going through this replication crisis where many very notable studies are being found to be false and not produce the same results when you repeat them. So bring those two things together, where would you say the state of psychology is at? And if we want it to become a empirical hard science, so it's a good beginning. There are two things you raise here. One is if I tell people I'm a psychologist, they'll get the wrong idea and think I'm a clinician. They'll tell me their dreams or the problems they're having their adolescence. And I'm a research psychologist. So I work in a part of psychology, which is the, the large part of psychology that studies the mind, studies the brain, studies how we think, how we act. A friend of mine, a social psychologist, when she asks what she does, she says, I'm a psychologist, but not the sort who helps people. And that's kind of where I stand. I often say I'm a, I'm a professor or something like that. So I wrote a big book all about psychology. And I wouldn't have done so if I wasn't a fan. 
I think psychology is a science. If it matters, it uses it uses the methods of science. It we've learned some things, we made some discoveries, some unintuitive discoveries, and I'm really kind of bullish and positive about about where we're going in a lot of directions. Having said that, sure, we've gone through a, a savage replication crisis where a lot of what we were doing, a lot of a lot of our ongoing research, including my own ongoing research, and a lot of research of classic studies from the past turned out not to replicate. You know, there was nothing behind it. But we've cleaned up our act a lot. And I think we're getting better. I think we could use some humility about what we know and what we don't know. I know people who will tell you, you know, we're just very close to discovering the complete theory of the mind. Or in fact, they have discovered it and you just got to read their books. There's a lot we don't know about people, about why, how people act, about how we think, about consciousness and so on. But we're, we're, we're doing pretty well. Is psychology's uh, unique reliance on qualitative information a disservice to it, or is this a benefit? It's, in my mind, qualitative information is quantitative if you simply have a large enough study. Mm. I think that working psychologists use the same sort of data at a very abstract level, the same sort of data as a, a sociologist, an economist, or for that matter, a chemist or a physicist. You know, we may use reaction times, we may use brain scans, we may ask people their opinions. Most of the work that falls under the rubric of scientific psychology veers away from case studies and particularly veers away from case studies where people talk about their feelings and talk about their experiences. I think some of the interesting exceptions look, look at our aspect where people look at rare clinical disorders, where you might just have a handful of people who have them. And then so there's stories. It's impossible to get a large enough sample size. That's right. That's right. So one of the lessons of the replication crisis is, you know, you got to test a lot more people in our studies. Our studies were underpowered. Our generalizations, therefore, weren't as good as we thought. But in some cases, you're just stuck with a small group of subjects. Maybe there just aren't many of them. If you want to, if you're interested in people with a Copgrass syndrome, for instance, which is this interesting disorder where you believe that the people you love the most in the world have been replaced by duplicates, you're not going to do a study of 200 of them. Right. So that, that is an issue. Another interesting issue that has been in discussion about psychology has been the weird bias. How big a problem is that? Are we all more alike than we think, and therefore culture isn't as big a variable as perhaps people intuit? Or is all psychological knowledge that we have really very limited to a small percentage of the population? We don't know. The weird bias refers to the idea that most of our subjects and almost all of the scientists doing research are from weird societies, and that's an acronym for Western Educated Industrialized Rich Democracies. So an American undergraduate is thousands of times more likely to be a subject in a study than somebody who lives in Africa, for instance. For some things, this probably matters a lot. And so we've probably built our, a lot of our social psychology and our personality psychology and said, this is a sort of theory of human nature. But in fact, it's a theory of Americans and Canadians and maybe Europeans. And that's huge. On the other hand, it might be that in some domains, there isn't as much variation as, as you might think. So for instance, research on how we perceive the world hasn't suffered as much from this weird bias because maybe people all around the world see the world in the same way. And there's other ways around it. So I do a lot of my work in developmental research and very roughly, when you study babies, it may not matter that much where you get the babies from because the babies haven't yet been corrupted by their cultures and their environments. But yeah, it's a big thing. And a lot of more people are sensitive to this. There's a lot more studies that look at people around the world. But it's true, your typical study will say, you know, here's a discovery about human nature. And they tested 300 people from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Or they tested somebody more frequently using an online service like Enter and Prolific which is broader, you get broader group of people, but still you get the kind of person who will go and sit at a laptop to make money. And that's not a representative sample of humanity. Has the internet been harmful for sampling in that way then? In the same way, online polling tends to actually produce worse results than when you called people up. When you had that more limited data set, you knew the sort of biases you needed to correct for. Whereas if you're looking simply to the entire internet as your potential sample space, you can get very weird distortions there that are hard to detect. For the most part, I think it's been all to the good because the way we used to do our research and the way I used to do my research was, you know, I'm an undergraduate at McGill doing my first study. So what do I do? I go around and I test 30 undergraduate students from McGill as part of their intro psych requirement, say. 
And then I say, this is how the human mind works. Yeah. And, uh, and now more and more of us do studies online. And if you do these studies right and use the proper tools to screen out outliers and screen out bots and so on, you get a much more representative sample of, you know, literate Western educated people. You still are missing the hunter gatherers. You're missing the people too poor to have access to computers. You're missing the elderly, but it's, a, it's much better. There are two problems with it. One is that it is so easy to collect data online. I've had studies where you sit with a student and you say, why don't we do this, 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 and then we come into a study and say, okay, all that. And then an hour later, they send me the results. And it's, it's amazing. It's just amazing. But it discourages many of us from running experiments. And there's much more of an emphasis on the sort of study you could do online. And then the other problem is with the rise of, um, of the, you know, large language models. I worry that soon we can't do online research anymore because the bots will be so sophisticated. We're going to be doing studies of 500 versions of chat GPT. I want to go into more general questions now, now that we've established the humility of psychology. And it's a multitude of strengths. But, and uh, it's a multitude of strengths, of yeah. course. And I'm going to have people who study politics on, and that will be a fair oh, dose God. of humility there too. Don't worry. Oh, don't get me started on economics. Psychologists have learned significant things about how people are different. We learn about how memory works, how perception works, how children learn language, rationality and reasoning, mental illness, how to be happy and so on. So you would focus on where we should be, be humble. I'm totally fine to start with that, but I just had to put it in the blood. You have extensive work studying babies and childhood development. So I want to talk about learning. And one of the big questions at the moment is around social media and smartphone use. So what age should children start engaging with these tools? Do you think the concerns about children using these is overhyped, or do you think there's a really legitimate worry here? That's, an, in a sense, it's an easy one. I don't know. People I respect, like John Haidt, have argued that social media and smartphones might pose a serious danger to children and are responsible for what we see as, as rises in depression and other forms of mental illness. Others who are very smart have argued against this and see the costs elsewhere. And I just don't know. I think it's a really interesting, socially important issue. If people nail down the case that social media is corrosive to kids, I think it's legitimate to take steps to fix that. I'm obsessed with freedom of speech for adults, but I'm less so for kids. I don't think there's a huge problem restricting, say, children, say, 11-year-olds from having access to this. Then again, if they're not the culprit, we shouldn't be focusing on them. And I don't know what the fact of the matter is. The internet is perhaps the greatest tool ever invented for learning, particularly self-learning. And yet, education over COVID using online tools like Zoom was a complete disaster. Huh. Why was that? It's funny, isn't it? Education over Zoom has been a complete disaster. I'm sure people push back, but it didn't go well. And before that, there were MOOCs. I don't know if people talk about MOOCs that more. These big courses on Coursera and edX and these other things. And people thought they would revolutionize education. They thought by now the university would be shut down. Kids would be learning everything on MOOCs. And I, I taught, I have a couple of MOOCs myself. One, a million people have, have, have been on it, but it hasn't transformed the world. And I don't know why not. The people who watch my MOOC are often older people. They're people who are very motivated. They're often people outside of the West who have no access to Western education systems. So I think benefit hugely from these things. But why, why have I reached a, a situation now where your high school kid could sit at home? and get a superb education online. I think maybe you need the motivational forces of having you know, come into class, go to lectures. Maybe there's something special about face-to-face -face contact, about actually you know, seeing somebody in front of you. It is a huge surprise how badly the internet experiment with learning has taken off. And maybe we could get it right. Oddly enough, sometimes like the Khan Academy has done very well, I think. If you're interested in coding and computation, the resources then are so fitted for what you're doing, like having a computer in front of you while you learn Python, how else would you do it? But for the most part, it hasn't had caused a revolution. People thought it did. And I don't know why. We learn far better when we want to learn something, uh, which yeah. suggests that schools should give students more choice in what subjects they're taught. But we also often don't know what's best for us. And what will make us happiest, even as adults, which would suggest we should have very little choice in what we're taught. 
So where do you lie on that? What do you think? Well, I don't know. I don't think about these issues. I, I guess I accept, I accept both points. Kids love video games. So if you want to make kids happy and make them enthusiastic, you have them do video games. The problem is you actually want them to learn how to read and do math and other things. So the solution is take the things that you want them to learn, Shakespeare and probability theory and all that stuff, and presented them in some way that they can become enthusiastic about. And that's, of course, the problem of good teaching. And I don't think we've solved it. One of the things that excites me about AI, and there's a lot of things that excite me, though I have some fear it's going to kill us all, but before it kills us all, one of the things that excites me is that it's excellent to teaching. You know, I was looking at some technical concepts in evolutionary theory, and I was reading this article. I just couldn't understand it at all. So I go to GPT-4 and I say, explain this to me like I'm a smart high school student. And there does it. And I said, I don't get that part. Give me three more examples. And apparently people learn R and they learn things through these systems. And it does accept me well. It never gets bored. It can repeat examples forever. It could frame things in as many ways as you want. And the idea of an AI tutor, of everybody could have their own AI tutor, seems to be really powerful, really wonderful. I don't think it's going to replace schools or replace a seminar room, which has its own valuable properties. But I'm very positive about that. The smartest people I know tend to use it the most to explain things in a simple way to them, which I find a really, that humility is an extremely valuable part in learning as well. Huh. I know a lot of people I respect use it a lot. Tyler Cowen, the economist, was heard him on a podcast. On Barry Weiss's. That's right. That's right. Barry Weiss's podcast. He says he tries to use it more than Google. He tries to use it all the time as a constant companion. And getting good at using AI, he describes as a valuable skill. Although, thinking about it, I mean, I think using a lot is valuable. It is a smart idea. But I think as it gets better and better, you'll no longer have to figure out how to be good at it. It'll be so good that there'll be no special skill you needed to exploit it. Given that a children's peers have more of a impact on who they develop to be, their sort of character than a parent's choices, for instance. Should parents focus on finding healthy peer groups as a priority above anything else? You know, there's a lot of premises in there, some which may be right, some which may be wrong. You're referencing this finding from behavioral genetics that when it comes to certain ways in which we differ, like intelligence, like personality, like character, um, we know there's a substantial effect of the genes. Just like if I know how tall your biological mother and biological father are, I could guess reasonably well how tall you'll be. If I know how extroverted they are, I could guess how extroverted you'll be, even if you never raise you. And then the second finding, which is maybe more surprising, is that the environmental part doesn't seem to come from the family. It seems to come from outside. Now, your suggestion, and many people believe this, Judith Rich Harris wrote a book called The Nurture Assumption, built on this, is that the missing part comes from peers. So the way that the sort of environment that shapes us is our peer groups, how other people treat us. That may be true. I'm not certain there's that much evidence for it. It could also be just random life events, you know, getting the flu right before a big exam, falling in love, and then having your heart broken, winning the lottery. Those sort of random events might drive the environmental difference. One reason to be somewhat cautious that it is peers is something that actually is sort of implicit in your question, which is if it is peers that shape a child's personality, parents have a lot of control over a kid's peers. Then you would expect when you do the math to find out that how a parent raises you will have a pretty big effect on your personality via the peers. Since you don't seem to have this powerful effect, it is a bit of an argument against the peer group hypothesis. In the New York Times recently, there was an article called, Does Therapy Really Work? So, does therapy really work? Yes. On balance, people are better off going to therapy, they're not going to therapy. Taking therapy in its broad sense, including cognitive behavioral therapy and medications and various forms of talk therapy, it does seem to work. There's been countless studies done that avoid placebo possibilities and regression to the mean and so on. Now, a couple of qualifications. Not all therapies work, and some work better than others. They work better for some people 
than for others. A lot of, for instance, anti-anxiety drugs, antidepressant drugs, often people have to cycle through a whole lot of them before they find one that fits with them. And then there are side effects and so on. Some therapies may make you worse. There's, there's some events that something, for instance, the scare straight program seems to get more kids into prison. Certain abstinence programs seem to increase promiscuity sometimes. And some individual therapy can have bad effect. But on balance, therapy works. The other big qualification is it doesn't work as well as it should. You know, I don't want to sort of sound nasty to some of my colleagues, but in my book, I review every aspect of psychology. And in just about every aspect of psychology, there's been enormous developments in the last 20 or 30 years. To some extent, clinical psychology is an exception, where if you see a therapist now, what's going to happen with you is not going to be so much different than if you saw a therapist in the year 2000. The drugs won't be that different. What they'll say to you won't be that different to exercise. There's more emphasis on mindfulness meditation and so on. But it hasn't had a revolution. It's waiting for a revolution. I know people who think it's just around the corner. It's going to be LSD or ketamine or something. And maybe I hope so. It works, but not as well as you would want it to. I have a proposed revolution. Will ChatGPT and programs like it make in-person cognitive behavioral therapy redundant? Rather than waiting for an appointment, you have a personal therapist that you can talk with on a regular basis on all your issues that are up to date. Rather than having to book a week ahead, you can, in a down moment, much like people use a meditation app to pause and unwind, you could go onto your AI therapist, talk out what you're feeling, and probably at a far lower rate per hour than an in-person therapist. And it's always there. Unlike having to get a schedule and show in there like on a Wednesday at eight o'clock when you're feeling perfectly fine, just a bit sleepy, when right after you've had to fight with your father, right after that, you go to your therapist and, and lock yourself in. I think probably, yes, you had a nice qualification in the way you phrased the question. You said cognitive behavioral therapy. And some of that is basically a workbook, a set of steps. And obviously the practitioner's skill varies, but for certain forms of therapy, you might imagine AI would do very well. A sort of deeper talk therapy? Well, if AI ever gets to the point where it's as smart as people or super intelligent, better than people, then there's no reason to expect it can't be a better therapist than a person. At this phase, we're very far from that. I had a dispute with somebody I loved recently and I was very upset. I didn't really know what to do. So on a lark, I just go and I say, let me describe the dispute. So what should I do? And then it was kind of nice to talk to after a while. This was actually Bing. And then it gave me some outlandishly bad advice. What was the bad advice? That I should confront this person, even though this person did not want to speak to me at the point. And then I said, this is very upsetting to me. This is bad advice. And it said, we're off to a new topic now. You've run out of iterations. So it was very, that remind me of a therapist saying, well, I'm sorry, our time is up. Yeah, I think this will make a difference for therapy. I think it'll make a difference particularly for CBT therapy. It might be if you have a problem with sleeping or a certain bad habit, this will be wonderful. It might also be more generally that the sort of companionship these things can offer will really help people with loneliness and sadness. The open question is, if we know it's an AI, would that take away from the value it has? There's something to talking to a person who has chosen to be there. Maybe I'm paying them, but they've chosen to be there and they're a person versus a machine. And maybe even if they say exactly the same things, our knowledge that one is a person, one is a machine will cause us to get the machine one advice and support to be downgraded. It won't feel right. Similar thoughts about sex robots. I will leave the sex robots questions to our I mean, The Sweet Spot, that's a perfect book for anyone interested. There we go. Best blurb ever. Speaking of sex, actually, there are certain behaviors that conservatives say will lead to a good life. These being monogamy, not having children be out of wedlock, holding on a stable job, graduating high school. For the average person, this probably is the path to most happiness. But there are obvious outliers. There are people with extreme risk tolerances who live for base jumping or blackjack. There are nomads who love life on the road and sex workers I have spoken to who love their work and wouldn't dream of anything else precisely because they have a very high sex drive. So how many people would you say are typical or atypical in this way? And how should we best go around finding that in ourselves without taking up too much risk? You're right. I'm not. Part of the problem with this, these sorts of happiness is 
you probably almost certainly um you find somebody who is in a simple relationship with a job and um and a piece somebody who loves them community they're probably likely to be urged but it's not clear it's never clear what's caused and what's effect um somebody who you know you find somebody who's been, my bet is that they're not probably not very happy as a whole but is that because I divorced five times and each time dropped her happiness or is it because they're the kind of person who is not happy with a settled relationship and gets divorced a lot um yeah i, I would defend a bourgeois life um there's a there's a wonderful quote by Freud, and apparently I'll still give it to him, um, which is that what matters in life is love and work. And by love, he meant like a romantic, deep, connected love. And by work, he meant a satisfying, fulfilling life projects. It doesn't have to be marriage. It doesn't have to be employment, but love and work. And I think that there's a deep insight there. As for human variation, um, I would think part of the project we want to go through, particularly when they're young, but probably at every stage of their life, is try to figure out what gives them fulfillment, what makes them happy. And you're totally right. For some, some people might be happier promiscuous than people. Some people may be, there's some people would get bored a nine to five job and prefer something a bit wilder. Um, we have different personalities and, uh, I think sometimes the best thing in life, one thing I'm kind of proud of myself for doing, is accept, take the way you are and find a life that fits it. You know, it's sort of like your, your body's a certain size and you have to find an off the road slip into it or you're your own tailor or something like that. So, you know, I, for instance, am pretty, uh, introverted. Um, I'm, I like reading a lot. I like, I'm an academic. And this is a perfect job for me. Would be a miserable salesman. I'd be uh, a, a you know a miserable acrobat. A miserable, that's a strange that that's that's a miserable acrobat. But anyway, um, you know, I, I think I um, intellectual gifts and would become I think a, a, a scholar of some repute. But he likes being outside. He looks at my life and says, you know, man, I, I wouldn't can sit at a, in front of a computer for hours and hours and hours. I like to climb. I like to run. And so he, he he's on the course of finding a life that lasts for them. Are Jung and Freud still relevant and important in contempt? But these are important figures in the development of the field. I think Jung isn't. I think Jung, Jung is, isn't really a figure of much of, um, a, a very, so you say Jung, maybe they say archetype. Or, you know, student of Freud or something, but they don't, they don't have very much conception of Jungian ideas play any role in, in mainstream such. Freud, Freud's a, a figure of, uh, immense, uh, pops. You know, you say to somebody, name a psychologist, what do you got to say? Say Freud. And I think extent deservedly so. So in my book, I defend him. I, I think that all of his specific claims, the Oedipus complex, the different stages, um, are, are nonsense, but he had some really powerful, important ideas. I think the idea of unconscious dynamics, and so uh, so Freud lives on. We don't we often don't admit to it, but every psychologist believes that we are to some extent unaware of what we do and why we think what we think, and our theories are largely theories of unconscious, and we see in that the legacy of Freud. Can ice cream ever be inherently appealing in savory dishes? Or can the appeal only ever be primarily meta, because you're intrigued by the subversion or perversion of your expectations? So what would be an example of ice cream as a savory dish, or part of a savory dish? You could have it with a lamb chop, for instance, with non-sweet beetroot ice cream. Hmm. Maybe to get to the core of your question, there are sort of two ways you could enjoy that sort of thing. One is it could taste freaking good. Like it could just be this wonderful combination, well-thought-out combination. And sometimes, you know, the, the right bit of cold, in a dish that's otherwise hot, or sweetness in a dish that's otherwise not sweet. It'd be just a thing. And then the second way is you could be pleased that you're subverting, you know, expectations. You're doing something crazy. You know, you're, you're squirting, you know, hot sauce into your hot fudge sundae or something. And, um, and that's kind of a different kind of animal. I sort of think that for the most part, there are extremes, but just about anything can be pleasurable or painful, yeah, depending on the mindset you bring to it. There was a chili in our school garden, and I bet it, and it was fine, and it was quite pleasant. But I touched my eyes, and that was not. 
And then years later, <laughs> I've made a one of my favorite cocktails ever made was a chili and chocolate margarita. It shouldn't work, but it's fantastic. Oh, that sounds good. I lived in Arizona for a while, and there was a big you know, jalapeno chili culture there. And I remember I had a bottle of vodka in my freezer where you put a giant jalapeno in it. So it became like spicy vodka. And it was, it was amazing. And of course, people like Bloody Marys. You're a physicalist, so you believe that all psychology exists out of the body. And yet our cells are constantly being replaced. So why do we still feel like ourselves, even when our cells are completely different? In some way, there's all sorts of physical things that undergo replacement and are still the same things. This could still be my same chair, even if parts of it are replaced over time, even if ultimately, like the sort of ship of Theseus, the whole thing's been replaced. So it doesn't suggest the sort of difference between people and other things. But there's a really good question, you know, separate from the metaphysics of it. Put aside the metaphysical question, am I the same person than when I was five years, years old? And of course, the way I frame the question presupposes I am. Otherwise, you wouldn't even understand it. But why do we feel in that way? And I think that the right answer comes from, um, well, many people, but including, say, Derek Parfit, talks about psychological continuity. So at every minute, every second till the next second, the person I'm most psychologically continuous with is this guy. And so there's a sort of transitivity that goes on here, which is maybe if you put me and my five-year-old self next to each other, you wouldn't find much psychological overlap. Maybe I'm more psychologically equivalent to, you know, to my sister than I am to five-year-old Paul. But five-year-old Paul was very similar to five-year-old and one-second Paul. It was very similar to five-year-old and two-second Paul. That string of things together brings us to me. And even though the endpoints are very different, we have this path that draws us. And maybe that's where the feeling of continuity comes from. Given the fallibility of memory, should we redesign the judicial system to remove eyewitness testimony? This would technically be feasible in camera-covered cities like London or New York. Removes too hard. I think that there are some cases where eyewitness testimony could be useful and indispensable. I just think we should be conscious of its weaknesses. So if I see you running across the street and just robbed a bank, I can say, oh my God, you know, I saw, I saw my friend run across the street. That sounds good, good eyewitness testimony. On the other hand, if I never met you before and then you mug me and then a year later, I point you out from a lineup, that's crazy. And, and so I think, I think getting rid of eyewitness testimony is too extreme, but we do have to be very conscious of its limitations. We should in some way exclude this use in certain cases because it's uh, prejudicial. Somebody stands up in a courtroom and says, that is the man that stole my purse and points. I remember it clear as day, 100%. It's so convincing, just like our own memories are convincing. You know, I can tell you where I was. I'm old enough to tell you where I was at the 9-11 attacks, and I'm probably wrong. You know, I know enough about this sort of thing to realize that I'm probably wrong, but we feel very strongly about our own memories. So the judicial system has already been responding to it. Lineups are done in very different ways, for instance, photo IDs. But if you're saying more should be done to sort of counter the fallibility of memory, I think that's absolutely true. Why is memory so fallible? Why is it that if I remember something from last year and I remember going to the event and I think, oh, it was so lovely wearing that light blue t-shirt, and I look at a photo, mm -hmm. quite often I won't have been wearing a light blue t-shirt. Yeah. Why is that? What is the evolutionary function? for sort of us replacing parts of our memories with things that didn't exist. You could tell two stories and they're compatible. One story is it doesn't really serve the fallibility of the memory doesn't serve a function. It just is because, you know, we don't have these old powerful computers in our heads. We have a sticky gooey meat and the storage capacity is maybe quite limited. The capacity for veridical storage. It's not like we're video recording the world and storing it away. I think we might have enough storage to do so, but just, it's not how it works. The system of storage is not faithful enough for that to happen. A second answer compatible, the first speaks to function says, what's memory for? Memory is probably not for remembering what t-shirt you wore in a concert three years ago. It's for learning. It's for making generalizations. So a dog bit me and another dog bit me. I remember that and now I'm scared of dogs. That's really smart. 
as well as individual things. You know, I gave you money a year ago. You owe me money. That sort of thing is what memory is for. But the specifics can go away. In fact, in some way, the specifics are a distraction. There are these stories of people apparently with virtually photographic memories, and it actually gets in their way because they don't make the right generalizations. I guess it's also more difficult to be spontaneous in a way because you're hamstrung by whatever you remember doing in the past. I don't know. It probably is not, certainly not in the world we evolved in, and probably not right now, very useful to have a perfect memory of everything. What you want to do is you want to get the generalizations. Go back to the dog example. It's not very good to remember this specific creature of a certain appearance bit me, and then this other specific creature of a certain appearance, very different appearance bit me. What you want to know was two dogs in a row, damn it, dogs are dangerous. And in some way, maybe you want to preserve the details, but you want to be able to sort of generalize and say, dogs bite. And that's what you want to take away. And if storing everything about the situation got in the way of that, it's a good argument against storing everything. It's, it's not incidental that the examples that you gave were dog biting, there were negatives. And that's one of the striking things about the way we remember things is that negative memories are far more sort of prevalent in our minds than positives. You remember a horribly embarrassing thing as a child far more than you do anything particularly positive in that period. Negative is more powerful and positive for everything. Psychologists helpfully call this a negativity bias, showing our ten- tendency to sort of pretend we've explained things by giving them names. But there's a perfectly good logic to this, which is, you know, Imagine the best thing that could happen to you the next hour, the very best thing in your life. You know, when you drop this podcast, what's the best thing? Okay. Imagine what's the worst thing. Well, the worst thing would, as a starter, involve you and everybody you love dying. It's pretty clear that the badness of the bad thing is more than the goodness of the good thing. In general, the negative is the more important than the positive because at the very least, the negative could kill you. And there's nothing so good that can happen to you that would outweigh being killed. And, you know, in general, pain, I think, is stronger than pleasure. I'm curious. I don't know. I haven't thought of it as much. Suppose you were offered a day of the best, or an hour of the most extraordinary pleasure you could ever experience, but it had to be accompanied with by an hour of the most horrible pain you experience. Would you take that deal? It would depend on my headspace. Ordinarily, I would say mm-hmm. no, because the aversion to touching a flame is very strong. And yet, I also do know the risk-taking part of myself that would be intensely curious about the positive experience. There are circumstances in which I would persuade myself that it won't be as bad as you think. You have to try this, yeah. which I, this is why I shouldn't try heroin. Yeah, I've never had heroin. If it turns out heroin is as good as having your whole body engulfed in flame is bad, then go heroin. I don't think it's that good. Sex is such an important thing for serotonin levels, for instance, and attachment levels. Can asexuals have just as loving relationships, just as tensely so, as sexually active couples, given that? Um, sure. There's all sorts of wonderful powerful relationships one has that don't have anything to do with sex, your relationship with your children. I love my sons as intensely as any love I've ever had, but it's not sexual. Love of friends for one another. You might say that there's a certain sort of intensity and that that connects to love. But, and I could easily see, just because this is the way it often happens, I could easily see sex accelerating it in a certain way. They're very hesitant to say that that sex is in any way essential. Could it be sort of a hedonic treadmill way in terms of if you have sex in a relationship, the presence of sex in the relationship keeps it to the maximum level, but in a non-sexual relationship, it's not a necessity to reach that. Well, I mean, the hedonic treadmill argument would say a relationship based on sex is headed for disappointment. There's some sort of, I think it's a Jewish parable. You take a couple and then each time they have sex in the first year of the relationship, they put a stone into a glass by the bed. And then from that year on, whenever they have sex, they remove a stone and they say it will never empty. It fades. It fades. So 
in some way, <laughs> it's a horrible way, but in some way we're all asexuals once the relationship has hit a certain number of years. Is nominal determinism real? And if so, why? Do you like flowers more than the average person? I just read this. I, so I don't read papers anymore. I just read tweets which describe papers. But apparently a big paper came out suggesting that there's a truth to a nominal determinism. So uh, my first name is Paul, and I'm a psychologist. Explain that. You're Ross and you're a writer. Close enough. Obviously, these are statistical correlations. But for some reason, yeah, it does seem to work out that way. I, I don't think my last name being Bloom makes me more likely to, to like flowers. But who, but who knows? Test a million people and do the comparison. Maybe there's a subtle effect. Why do people rarely report seeing smartphones in their dreams? I don't know. Why? Is there a theory of this? My theory on it is that when you're looking at a smartphone, you're primarily considering what's on it or in it. When I'm messaging someone, I'm not thinking that I'm using a phone. I'm thinking that I'm communicating with whomever I'm speaking with. And therefore, if it's in some abstract unconscious, I'm not thinking about it primarily as a phone. I'm processing it as a interaction or a conversation. Yeah, that's clever. I don't think people read very much in their dreams either. Maybe because when you read, you're focusing on the content, not the medium. I do have a lot of television-related dreams involving not just sort of characters from television shows I watch, but involving the fact that it's on television and issues of scripting or I'm an actor in the show or so on. But that's not a bad theory about smartphones. Oddly enough, I'm on a computer an enormous amount in the real world. But I don't think I'm going to computer much in dreams. The only time I can recall a computer being in my dream is I once accidentally put a chair through the top of a laptop. And that has come back in my dreams a couple of times for the fairly obvious reason. Huh. And how did that make you feel? <laughs> well, not great. That's, oh, there we go. I'm trying my therapist voice. That would be an event that could, that could creep back up on you. After the break, quick questions with Paul Bloom. questions. Do we have free will? Yes, but in a sense, it's compatible to terminate. Do you meditate? No, I've tried. Why has it not worked? My consciousness is too freaking unruly. I set a timer for five minutes and then I become convinced that my timer broke and then I look and one minute has passed. I keep promising to try again and maybe I will. I have downloaded Sam Harris's Waking Up app, which I've heard good things about. And I keep meaning to try it. And I have some wonderful friends who tell me to go to meditation retreats, which to me sound like unimaginable torture. Do you wish you were less empathetic? Yes, very much. Very much. I think many of my moral failings revolve around becoming too caught up in the people around me and having problems taking a, a bigger picture. You know, when I wrote the book Against Empathy, to some extent, it was, you know, advice to myself. What's your favorite form of benign masochism? Probably spicy foods. I, I really enjoy a good chicken vindaloo and like that. Is Lacanian psychoanalysis a scam? <laughs> it would seem unfair to say it's a scam. There may be something of, of value in it. To me, it's gibberish, but I want to show a bit of humility and not say yes to that question. Should Adler be better known than Freud? No. No. Adler thought up self-esteem, good intellectual contributions, but Freud is Freud. So there's very few people who should be better known than Freud. How should we remember Viktor Frankl? Oh, uh, well, well, uh, Man's Search for Meaning is a wonderful book. And his ideas about the meaningful life, his ideas, his certain ideas about paradoxical therapy, where, you know, sometimes if there's something that you really worry about doing, you should try to do it. And then paradoxically, the worry would go away. I think he was, you know, a brilliant man and led an extraordinary life and helped a lot of people. Carl Hart argues that drug addiction is not a chemical problem, but one of untreated mental health issues that are being projected onto drugs. Do you agree? I don't know. I think drug addiction is such a, a heterogeneous, such a varied sorts of thing. I would be reluctant to make any generalization about it. I will fully confess to being addicted to caffeine in every possible way. But I think that's somewhat different in alcoholism, which is different in a heroin addic addiction. Like all of these things, it's probably going to end up be some sort of complicated goulash of genetically determined factors and environmentally determined factors and higher order 
aspects of choice. So I can't make a generalization about that. What assumptions about sentience are we most likely to be wrong about? Well, I like the question. I'll, I'll tell you the one I believe. Because, and that one I believe is that sentience is in some deep sense connected to being a biological organism. I hold up my MacBook Pro and say, I don't care what kind of GBT infinity you have. There's no way to think to be conscious. But I don't have a good argument for it. So let's say that that's the one that's likely to be wrong. Will psychology eventually fold into neuroscience? No, absolutely not. That's an easy one. The levels of explanation are different. They won't fall into neuroscience for the same reason why auto mechanics won't reduce to quantum physics. We found about auto mechanics, you want a level of generalization that talks about a steering wheel and an engine. And quantum physics doesn't have that language. For psychology, you want to be able to talk about beliefs and desires and memories and emotions and neuroscience. It's just it's the right language to think of those things. Will online accreditation courses become a meaningful competitor to higher education in the next 20 years? I don't think anything like that will ever compete with elite universities because elite universities are so driven by status. I think assuming the world continues to exist 500 years from now, there'll be a Princeton and a Yale and a Stanford and people will try to get degrees from that. Other less prestigious universities, I can imagine online courses making a real dent into them and maybe ultimately replacing them. Given that we learn best when studying things we are generally interested in, should all universities model themselves after Bennington College? In Bennington College, the kids could do whatever they want. I have heard of someone there who studied neuroscience and ballet dancing simultaneously. You don't have lectures specifically. You say the subjects you're interested in, and then they bring in specialists to teach you on it. I don't have a problem with the neuroscience, ballet dancing, double major. That sounds kind of fascinating. I don't know if I have a problem at somebody entering university and saying, I'm paying, I want to learn this, and I don't want to learn that. High school is different. Elementary school is different. They'll say, I don't want to learn how to read. Well, you got to learn how to read. But at a university level, people should be allowed to do whatever they want. Now, they may choose to self-mind. They may choose to go into a university and say, okay, you're going to learn to read the great books. Are you going to get a basic science education? And once you opt into it, you got to do a whole shebang. You can't say, well, I want to skip Chaucer. You know, no biochem for me. You got to take the whole thing. But that would still be a matter of choice. I have no objection to, to universities being entirely choice-driven. Why do you prefer PhD students with a background in theoretical disciplines outside of psychology? They're more fun to talk with. And I think they bring something in, almost by definition, they bring something into the field that you won't get from a student of more traditional background. The real secret sauce in academia, or scholarship or research sometimes, is Everyone is doing it the same way. And you come in, you have a different background. And the background could be analytic philosophy, it could be neuroscience, it could be computer science, it could be theology, economics. And then all of a sudden, and you say, what if we did things a different way? And then that could just be, be mind-blowing. Certainly, many of the great accomplishments in psychology have been done by people with training in economics or philosophy or linguistics, say. What was your favorite novel released in 2022? I think it was Sea of Tranquility by Emily St. John Mandel. I really enjoyed her book, Station Eleven and The Glass Hotel. And this was a shorter book, but uh, it was a real, a real pleasure to read. Final three questions. Which psychological concept is most interesting and important that most listeners won't have heard of? I think nativism. I think the idea that there are innate capacities, innate ideas is shocking to some people and they find it confusing or puzzling or kind of scary. And if, if I would, could sit people down and say, let me tell you some studies with babies, that would definitely be something I'd want to teach. I'm sure I can think of better examples if I had more time, but I'll go for nativism. This is an additional final question, but what's the most interesting thing and surprising thing that you found studying babies? I was involved many years ago with a series of studies in baby social knowledge. And <laughs> these studies and they ended up in Pages of Nature, and maybe my most cited empirical work. And I didn't think in a million years they would work. They just seemed crazy. Babies at like nine months old can tell, at some level, can tell right from wrong. They see somebody being nice and somebody being mean. They prefer the nice guy over the mean guy. And 
it's so much of what you do in psychology is you do a study and you find these correlations and this has somewhat of an effect and you, you suggest this and that. But the baby studies, it was a discovery, just a discovery. And some of the, the scientists who have the most respect for are people like Elizabeth Spelke, who did amazing discoveries of, about our fundamental knowledge of the world. What's the most interesting paper you read recently or that you read a tweet about? <laughs> Thank you for the qualification. The answer comes to mind very easy because I just read about it, I think, yesterday, actually on Twitter, but then I went and read the actual paper. It's by Adam Mostriani and Dan Gilbert, and it's called The Illusion of Moral Decline. And it was published in one of those prestigious journals, there is Nature. And what they found was testing using studies of millions of people, survey studies, is that most people think the world has gotten morally worse. They think people are less kind, less trusting, meaner, less respectful, and so on. That's part one. Part two is, it's an illusion. You look at data from every poll from the last many, many years, where you ask people, how respected do you feel? How much do you trust your neighbor? And you find actually things have just stayed the same. That was just a cool, a clever and cool study. As with a lot of the work that Dan Gilbert's involved in, it led me feeling a combination of admiration and jealousy. There's also, uh, many listeners are interested in, a very easily written, it's very easy to read, unlike many academic studies. Gilbert is well-known for his easy writing, and this is a great example of that. Yes, and Adam, if you go to his Substack, um, has a nice, very digestible summary of the article. He's also a very gifted writer. Final question. What are you working on at the moment? I'm working on two things. I'm writing something for the New Yorker, assuming the New Yorker continues to, to like it, on AI alignment. And it's built from a, a clever paper finding that the moral intuitions of ChatGPT 3.5 are pretty much the same as a person's. And so I'm trying to think, what implications does this have? Does this mean we've solved the alignment problem? Because now it's like a person, so there. And, we're gonna ask, and because the article's going to be more than 300 words, the answer's no. And I want to talk about why. And that's a lot of fun because I don't know anything about this issue. So I've just been reading like, like crazy. And that's just a lot of fun. And then I'm also trying to put together a book proposal for a book on perversity. Why we do perverse things. Where perversity, I'm defining it as why we do things that are wrong or immoral. Not despite the fact that they're wrong or immoral, but because they're wrong or immoral. And that to me is just such a hugely fun topic. Paul, thank you so much for talking with us. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. If you like the podcast, please share it with your friends and family and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you really loved it, you can become a supporter at arguablypod.com. For just £5 a month or £50 a year, you'll get access to new episodes a week early, participate in our Q&A episodes, and join the comment section. You can follow the podcast at arguably underscore pod on Twitter or arguably pod on Instagram. And you can follow myself everywhere where people are followed at, at that Ross chat. Thank you again.